Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 66. And I don't have a title yet. And you might ask, well, how how can you start a podcast and not have any idea what the title is going to be? And let me give you some insight into how these podcasts come about. Every Monday morning, I get up, I do a little morning routine, and then I sit down and begin to write an article. I do a weekly personal finance column for my local newspaper. And that column is about 900 words forms the basis of each week's podcast episode. Now, a typical podcast has been, episode's been about three to 4,000 words. And so I don't write out what I speak about on the podcast. I sort of have that article as a base and I expand from there. And, and those articles and those episodes are on whatever I happen to have find fascinating in the previous week. Some podcasters can can batch up and they'll record seven episodes in one day or several in one day. My mind just doesn't work like that. I If I can get one interesting thing fascinating me per week and can write about it and speak about it, I'm happy. Now, in many of the earlier episodes of the podcast, I reference ancient writings. Example was back in episode 31. I mentioned Boethius, who wrote Consolation of Philosophy. And Boethius lived in the early Middle Ages. And in episode 31, it was on the role of luck and success. And I, I liked what he had to say about luck and chance and meaning and purpose of life. In episode 28, Live by Your Own Financial Rules, they mentioned Zhuangzi, who also was an ancient Chinese philosopher, wrote his text about 300 BC. More recently, in episode 54, Do You Live to Work, Work to Live? I mentioned the Hojuoki, which was written by Chomei, an ancient Japanese version of Walden, which was written about 1200 AD. I like those writers because they lived in a time before we had a lot of the, let's say, more sophisticated theories that we have today and to deal with what they actually were grappling with. And what were they grappling with? Well, they grappled with what Nassim Nicholas Taleb called the extended disorder family, uncertainty, variability, imperfect, incomplete knowledge. Chance, chaos, volatility, disorder, entropy, time, the unknown, randomness, and turmoil. When we invest, and in our financial life, in our actual life day to day, we deal with this extended disorder family. And I'm fascinated to see how early writers who didn't necessarily have terms such as this to describe what was going on as they tried to deal with their life. 
Now, here's the thing about the extended disorder family. We actually like it to some extent. You know, all those terms sort of have a negative, but we can put a positive spin on it and think about surprise. You know, a lot of what falls in the extended disorder family is surprise. We like surprises. We like spontaneity. I think one reason Twitter and Facebook are so compelling for people is, is the spontaneity factor. It's the juxtaposition of completely unrelated content that flows by on our stream or newsfeed. A friend's vacation photos, followed by another friend's political rants, followed by a link to a cat video, followed by a sponsored ad for a product that we had searched for earlier that year or that day. And, and so we like that, that randomness of that. Otherwise, why do we keep going back? We're looking for that surprise, that, that hit to, the, to, to our brain when something new occurs. Claude Shannon, who was one of the early developers of information theory, worked at Bell Labs during the 40s, and, and he defined really the physical aspect of information, and he defined it as uncertainty, surprise. So the more surprise in a piece of data, the more information content. Now, this week, I came across a fascinating book that my son had recommended, and it has this element of of surprise to it. In ancient Japanese literature, there was this form well, in ancient Japan, as well as others, where you sort of put, you lump in random fashion discussions of, of various topics. And, and the idea is that they're often completely unrelated. Now, a more recent example would be Leonardo da Vinci's notebooks. If you, if you go through that, I have, a, I have a, I guess, a replica copy. And it, it's complete, complete disorder and chaos. He's got left-handed mirror writings. I'm going to pull it up in front of the mirror to be able to read it, if you can read Italian. And it has sketches and diagrams, and they're all jumbled together. And in ancient Japan, they did very similar, although not necessarily sketches. And, and the book I'm referring to is called Essays on Idleness. It was written by Yoshida Kenko, a Japanese Buddhist monk. He lived in the late 13th and early 14th centuries in Kyoto, Japan. It was a time of chaos. You had, you had political intrigue between rival emperors. You certainly had this samurai warrior class. You had, he, he served originally, he had a court position, and there was all this political intrigue dealing with court. You had massive fires that would go through the city. You had, you had earthquakes that, that Japan suffers through. And he didn't necessarily have the language that we use to describe the disorder and chaos, and certainly not information theory. Yet, he dealt with the same challenges that we have. What do we do in the face of the unknown, and how do we deal with it? And particularly, he was in tune to certainly nature in the cycle of the seasons, as many of the ancient Japanese were, but also the idea of what he called the law of immutability, which was his word for when we think of something that's immutable, 
it's changeable. And particularly, he, he recognized entropy, that disorder comes about over time. He didn't have a term for it. The term he used is impermanence, that we are slowly, slowly, slowly moving toward death. And, and everything is changing and dying. And perhaps that's sort of a, 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 down, a downtrodden view, but that was what he recognized. And he addressed, how can we live in the face of this impermanence? Recognizing that we will all die, how should we live today? Kenko starts his book, what strange folly to beguile the tedious hours like this all day before my inkstone jotting down at random the idle thoughts that cross my mind. And later he says, these pages deserve to be torn up and discarded, after all, and are not something others will ever see. Fortunately, those pages survived. Essays on idols is filled with vignettes, aphorisms, and advice on love, leadership, personal habits, food, Guarding, etiquette, aesthetics, medicine, and finance. Now, there's much that he wrote that I disagree with. I mean, his view, he lived in medieval Japan. His view on women and the ages is hopelessly outdated. In fact, if anyone that lived past 40 shouldn't be around because they get old and ugly and they should go off and be secluded. So, I, which. Many of this audience is above 40. We certainly don't want that. Yet his financial advice, his business advice, and advice on life was so before his time. I don't read a lot of self-help books today, but when I, when I share some of the things he, he taught, it's as if he could have written a modern-day self-help book. Here's an example. He once asked a skilled player of Sugoroku, which is a board game similar to backgammon, and he wanted hints on how to play better. And here's what this skilled player says. Don't play to win. Play not to lose. Consider what moves would make you lose most quickly and avoid them. Choose a method that will make you lose after your opponent, even if only by a single square. And Kenko goes on to say, this lesson from one who knows his art equally applies to the arts of governing both self and nation. Now, have you heard that before? Don't play to win, play not to lose. I, think, I seem to remember, I used to play tennis in high school, a, a game, a book called The Inner Game of Tennis. And, and that was sort of the message. You, you don't play to win, you play not to lose. How do we do that in investing? Well, investing, we, we win by not losing when we minimize our investment fees, use ETFs or passive index funds primarily. And we don't trade very much, so we can minimize taxes. And so you, you, you get that advantage by keeping fees low, taxes low, and that's a way to win by not losing. Another way to win by not losing is how you deal with the future when it comes to investing in other areas of your life. And Kenko addresses this. If you're an active investment manager trying to make active stock picks, you are trying to win. 
you're winning because you're trying to outsmart the market. But you can win by not losing by recognizing that the future is unpredictable. And so instead of just and – and one, you could just hold on for dear life, be a strategic long-term buy-and-hold investor. Or you can do like I do and protect against the downside and take advantage of the unpredictability of markets to capture the upside. How does Kenko address that? Here's his quote. The progress of each passing day is quite unlike your anticipation of it. We just don't know what's going to happen. And the same goes for a year and for life. Yet, if you assume that everything you will anticipate will go awry, you'll find that, in fact, some things don't, which makes it all the more difficult to plan. The only certain truth to learn is all is uncertain. Some things will go like we want. Other things won't. We have these well-laid plans. They'll go awry. We think something's going to happen with the markets. It don't. It doesn't. So, so how do we do with it? Here's his solution. Maintain a clear space on either side and nothing will obstruct obstruct you. Keep open before and behind you and you will be unimpeded. If you let yourself be hemmed in, you can be squeezed to the breaking point. Without care and flexibility in your dealings with the world, you will find yourself in conflict and damage. How do we keep this clear space on either side? Nothing in, uh, just essentially what he's talking about is a buffer, a margin of safety to protect against the unknown. Emergency savings is an example of that. Insurance is a way to do that. Having some cash in our portfolio and being extremely diversified with different portfolio drivers in a portfolio is a way to, to take advantage of that, but certainly to do everything we can to protect against extreme events, downside, and then we can take advantage of the positive surprises. And this idea, the only certain truth is to learn all is uncertain. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. netsuite.com david.
What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Kenko tells the story of a merchant who sold an ox, and the buyer promised to come in the morning to pay and retrieve his purchase. And unfortunately, the ox died during the night, and so the, the seller lost out. I had the exact same experience recently. Not an ox, but I had a, a John Deere lawnmower, 14 years old, was all set to sell it. I had a buyer. He wanted to come buy it. He came, and the mower wouldn't start. So I couldn't sell it to him. Then another buyer called, and I said, well, the, the mower is a little temperamental. It's very upfront. But they came, and it started, and I said, if it doesn't work, let me know, and I'll pay to fix it. And so they, they, they gave me the money, and they came back to pick it up, and it wouldn't start. So we pushed it onto the trailer. We went to the lawnmower store, and to have them at least maybe there was something to do it, and there was a quick fix. And they went off with their mower. Now, this ox died, and a bystander remarked, the owner did indeed lose on the transaction, but he profited greatly in another way. Let me tell you why. Living creatures have no knowledge of the nearness of death. Such was the ox, and such too are we humans. As it happened, the ox died that night. As it happened, the owner lived on. One day's life is more precious than a fortune's worth of money, while an ox's worth weighs no more than a goose feather. One cannot say that a man who gains a fortune while losing a coin or two has made a loss. The bystander goes on, Well then, if people hate death, they should love life. Should we not relish each day the joy of survival? Fools forget this. They go striving after other enjoyments cease to appreciate the fortune they have and risk all to lay their hands on fresh wealth. Their desires are never sated. There is a deep contradiction in failing to enjoy life and yet fearing death when faced with it. It is because they have no fear of death that people fail to enjoy life. No, not that they don't fear it, but rather forget its nearness. This is a constant theme in Kenko's writings. That death is always near. It sneaks up behind us. We have a tendency, especially the young, to think we're invincible, that we will live for decades and not, and we're, and we're just, and because we don't fear that death is just around the corner, we don't use our time perhaps as well as we should. Now, what does Kenko say to do about that? And, and this, this particular section is. He could have written this today. I, in fact, I'm sure I've read similar type language. He says, imagine someone comes to you and announces that you will die tomorrow. How will you spend your last day? What entertainment could you find? How would you busy yourself? And how is this day we are now living different than the final day? I think every personal coach uses that same technique. And there's Kenko using it in 1300. A.D. 
So given how fleeting life is, Kenko admonishes us, when it comes to the essential, both in religious and in worldly life, you should not wait for the right moment in what you wish to achieve, nor dawdle over preparations. Your feet must never pause. People know they will die, but death will surprise them while they believe it is not yet close. It is as if we gaze at the far-off ebb tide flats while even now the sea is rising to flood the rocks we stand on. Perhaps I'm a little focused on death right now, and I've not done it in podcast, is in a few weeks will be the 20th anniversary of my dad passing away. He was 54. Death snuck up on him. He died within really just a few weeks. He had throat cancer and never went to the doctor. I remember my, our son at the time was four, and we were living in Dayton, Ohio. My dad was down in Cincinnati in Price Hill area, living alone, and he had just got back on his feet. He, about six months earlier, he was out of work, and, and my dad was a recovered alcoholic and just didn't, just wasn't one to ask for help. But he, he finally called and, and, and said he needed some money, needed some help. So I went down, I drove down the hour or so to visit him and, and found the apartment nearly dark and an extension cord running from the apartment upstairs down into his building, because, into his apartment because his power had been turned off. And literally had no money, had no food, and just, and, and perhaps I'm a negligent son, that I just didn't catch on to this. But he, he was just, he kept to himself. And, and we were, he just kept to himself. So I, I went to an ATM and we got him some food. And I remember asking him, this is six months before he died, now, he had been dry, recovered, had not drank in probably 10 years. And I said, you know, when you, when you hit bottom like that, do you ever have a desire to drink? And he, he said, no, the thought of it makes me sick. He had overcome that, that weakness. But he, he, wanted, he, was a, he was an accountant, and he hadn't worked in an accountant for years. And he'd been sending out these resumes on a dot matrix, matrix printer. This was in the mid-90s when, <laughs> I'm not sure dot matrix printers still existed. Well, he was getting no response. And I just didn't know what to do. I mean, I, he needed to find work, but he'd been out of the field. And, and I got some advice from a friend. And we got my father lined up with a temp agency. And he got a job in accounting with the medical institution. And, and life was good. He got back on his feet and things were going well. And then he got sick. And in my, my four-year-old, this was by June, so he, he'd been working four or five months, my father, and my four, four, so we, we should go visit Grandpa. So we went down, and, and I was absolutely shocked because my, my father had lost 30 pounds. I, I mean, I didn't recognize him. And, I, and he said he was fine, and everything was fine. And we said, are you feeling well? And he said he was fine. But the thought occurred to me that you know, he just didn't look well. And I tried to encourage him to go to the doctor, and, and like I said, my dad stuck to himself and, and just wouldn't reach out and, and died within a matter of weeks. It, was, it snuck up on him. We have to, as Kenko says, he gives the analogy of a, 
if we if we build a Buddha out of a snowman, that's what many of us do. We we have we want to build a Buddha out of a snowman in the spring. We deck it out with jewels and precious metals, and we want to build a worship hall. And he says, so many strive in hopes of the future, even as life still in them is daily dissolving away like snow from beneath the snowman. Life dissolves away. We have to make this balance. We we need to prepare for the future. We have to have our hopes for the future, but not to the expense of today. We have to seize the instant, is what he says. If life is fleeting, we have to decide what's most important. Kenko tells of a man who wanted to be a monk and make a living by preaching. Well, at least his father wanted him to do that. And so the man and his father said, you need to study the, this, this ancient language or these ancient philosophies so you can preach it. Well, this man decided he, what he really needed to do was learn to ride a horse since he had no carriage. So if, if someone went to fetch him in his service as a monk and, and sent a horse to get him, what if he couldn't ride the horse and, and he, he fell off? So he, he decided, well, I'm going to learn to ride a horse before I learn to be a preacher and learn what monks need to do. And then after he learned to ride a horse, he said, well, I need to learn popular songs. For a monk, after they give the service, often are asked to, to join his customers in taking some sake after the service, and the client would be unimpressed if he couldn't entertain the gathering. So he learned the popular songs and stories. And then once he learned to ride a horse and stories, he just wanted to do it even better. And eventually he never learned to be a monk because he spent all of his time learning horsemanship and the telling stories. Now, perhaps in his case, he never really wanted to become a monk. But Kenko says, while we are young, we have all manners of ambitions, plans for the future to make a success of ourselves in life, achieve grand things, learn skills, study. But there seems plenty of time to fulfill our wishes, and we dawdle on the way, letting ourselves be distracted by the passing concerns of life. So we grow old, having, in fact, done nothing much. Regret them as we might, there is no regaining our lost years, and like a wheel running ever faster downhill, Debility overtakes us. While we have succeeded in learning no skill, never achieved the success we dreamed of in life. Thus, you should carefully consider which among the main things you want in life is the most important and renounce all others to get dedicate yourself to this thing alone. Now, most of us can't have such a singular focus. There's many things we want, but we certainly can narrowed down the list if we keep in mind, as he does, that life is fleeting. It is slowly dissolving away like the snow. And and there's a paradox of wealth. How much time do we spend getting wealth and and saving for the future and how much time do we spend living our life today? We all have to find that balance. So I'll leave it at that. Go find yourself a copy of Essays in Idleness. It is a book packed with all types of random facts and advice. The self-help book for the 12th century. 
You can read about the man who gets a pot stuck on his head and how they eventually got it off. You can, real, you can read about why having everything match is not really what we want. You can read about what he recommends you put in your garden and why carp is the best fish for eating. And, and it's one thing after the another, completely random in its order, completely disconnected, but probably one of the most fascinating books, if not the, the most fascinating book I read this year. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also you can sign up for my insider's guide, and I'll email those show notes to you weekly. That's also where I email the summary article, which is the article I write for my weekly paper. I include that in that insider's guide so you can really have a summary of, of much of what is covered in the podcast. That's at moneyfortherestofus.net. If you have any questions, go ahead and email me, JD at jdavidstein.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode is for general education only. I have not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided any type of investment advice, simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.